0: the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord, their hosts, their God. On the twenty-fourth day of the month and the sixth month, In the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and uh, being able to learn from it this morning. And God, that uh, you love us so much and uh, God, you've given us so much to live for and a purpose in you. And I pray that uh, as as I uh, talk about your word this morning, God, that it would be the truth Um, And God, I pray that it would be for your glory and and not for my own. Um, But God, that we would hear uh, what you have to say with us, that we would be convicted, uh, that we would be challenged, and also that we would be encouraged uh, to do what you've called us to do uh, because it's really the best thing for us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main idea I have for this morning's sermon is is that we are meant to live not for our own glory or comfort, but for the sake of God and his glory. Again, we are, we're meant to live not for our own glory or comfort, but for the sake of God and his glory. And I'm convinced that what God spoke through the prophet Haggai uh, to these people in Israel is just as applicable to us today as it was to the original audience. And so let's, let's see what it has to teach us. First of all, you'll notice that the, uh, the book of Haggai begins by giving us a very specific date. I mean, verse 1 says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And what I love about this is, just like we've seen as the elders have been teaching through Luke, is that this is really different than like an ancient legend. Because we're given um, very specific details. For example, in the mythology class that I teach, we just finished a unit on the uh, ancient Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf. And uh, Beowulf's a really cool uh, poem. Uh, It was written in probably around 1000 AD and and telling about events that happened in 500 AD. But a big difference between Beowulf and a book like Haggai is uh, Beowulf is a legend. It doesn't give us these type of specific details or dates. It has much more of a like once upon a time feel to it. But here in Haggai, it's, it's not simply existing once upon a time. We're given a specific date. And in fact, um, there's, there's widespread consensus among scholars that we can kind of pinpoint this exactly down to the year 520 B.C. because he's measuring these dates by the Persian king Darius. And uh, he's measuring the, the dates by, by Persian king because at this time there was no king in Israel, if you guys remember when we were going through Isaiah, Isaiah and the prophets uh, told the people of God that you know if they kept disobeying God, if they kept trampling over the covenant, then they would be carried away into exile. And long story short, they didn't listen, and they were carried into exile in 586 BC by the Babylonians. But just like the prophets told uh, the Israelites, and like Isaiah said. They were eventually freed from captivity when the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And the Persian king Cyrus, in the year 538 BC, sent them back, sent some of these uh, former exiles back to Israel to rebuild the temple. But now the year, at this time of Haggai, is 520 BC. So this is almost 20 years after these former captives have returned back to Israel. And although the book of Ezra gives us some of the details about some difficulties with the neighboring people, The fact of the matter is that it's it's 20 years later and God's temple has yet to be rebuilt. And why not? Verse 2 gives us the answer. God says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. God's people hadn't rebuilt the temple because they just didn't think it was like time to do so. You'll notice that they're not like willing to be directly opposed to uh, the idea of building the temple. They know that God has that for them but they're kind of like spiritualizing their excuse. They're like, yeah, you know, we're supposed to do this, but it's just not time right now. They're they're trying to rationalize their their lack of obedience by making excuses. And just a few years after they returned back from exile, Ezra gives us some more details of what was going on here. Because they actually started to rebuild the temple. Ezra 3:10 through 11 gives kind of the account of what was going on with this. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. However, 14 years later in Haggai's time, the temple still hadn't been rebuilt. In fact, the work had completely ceased. And, you know, if I think about this, like, I feel like a lot of things in our lives are very similar to this. That we'll, we'll start out some endeavor for the Lord and we're like really pumped and excited and passionate about it. But then as time goes on, it slowly starts to fizzle out as as difficulties come and the newness wears off and our priorities start to shift elsewhere. And I can imagine some of the excuses that these Israelites were kind of thinking, right? They're saying, ah, you know, this land has been desolate for 70 years. We need to focus on cultivating that. The temple can wait. We'll, We'll get to that. Or they're thinking things like, you know, it's hard work to rebuild the temple. Life was so much easier and more comfortable back in Babylon, But God has a response to this way of thinking among the Israelites. Verses 3 and 4 say, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? This is a rhetorical question from God. The people were saying, ah, it's not yet time for us to build the temple. And God's asking, why not? Is it instead because it's a time for you to to, you know, just be able to hang out comfortably in your nicely built homes while my house lies in ruins. And I can imagine the Israelites are kind of thinking things like, well, I mean, when you put it that way, you know, <laughs> that doesn't sound so nice. And so God's God's asking questions to reveal what's what's some wrongly ordered priorities in the, in the hearts of his people. But again, this, this has more to do with just wrongly ordered priorities, because why do we prioritize the things that we do? Isn't it just the things that we care about most, or the things that we love the most? I mean, you may respond, you may think like, well, I, I prioritize school, I prioritize my job, that's not because I necessarily love it, but you know, regardless, you're prioritizing it because probably something that it's going to give you, like a paycheck, to provide for you and your family. And so, when God is exposing the wrongly ordered priorities of the Israelites, He's really revealing the wrongly ordered hearts because they wanted to care for their own houses more than they wanted to care for God's house. They were more concerned with their own kingdom and with their own comfort rather than they were about God's kingdom and His glory. And to be completely honest, as I was preparing this message. This verse was the one that kept, like, pricking me over and over again. Because, I, you know, I think about it. Like, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? Because I want to say things like, oh, you know, I, just, I, I stayed up kind of late last night and uh, need to kind of sleep in this morning. I'll get to reading the Bible later. But then God's saying, you know, is it a time for you to slumber while my word remains unread? Or I'll think of things like, you know, I just wasn't as intentional in that conversation when the opportunity came up to share the gospel. Uh, But God's saying, like, is it a time for you to remain in your comfort zone because you don't want to appear weird or awkward? Um, Meanwhile, my gospel remains unshared. It's not just that my priorities need to be adjusted a little bit. I mean, the honest thing is that my heart's wrong, right? A lot of times I end up loving comfort more than I love the Lord, and that's not a very flattering realization but it's a, it's an honest one and it's one that demands a response and so how does god here in haggai respond to the heart problem of his people verse 5 he says thus says the lord of hosts consider your ways and this expression lord of hosts it's used continually actually 14 different times throughout haggai again and again in this term Host is, is talking about like an army, like uh, soldiers. And specifically in God's case, is talking about an uh, uh, army of angels. And contrary to the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, angels are not these cute little naked babies with little wings flying around. All right? They're, they're terrifying creatures. In the Bible, anytime that a, a angel appears to somebody, they're, they're afraid and they're shocked and they're overwhelmed and the angel usually has to be like, calm down, fear not. You know, it's okay. Let me deliver my message. And so, Angels are these powerful and otherworldly creatures that are at God's disposal. And so this term, Lord of hosts, it's really emphasizing God's power and God's authority. And it's this almighty God of hosts who tells his people, "'Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes.'" God's telling them to examine their lives and just see how things are going. He's saying that all their efforts aren't really producing their desired effects. They're sowing a lot in the field, but they're not producing much. They're eating and they're drinking, but they're not satisfied. Their clothing doesn't even seem to warm them like it should. And they earn money, but then they seem to lose it just as quickly. And who's doing this but their sovereign God, the Lord of hosts, he's the one that's frustrating their efforts. And from one perspective, this can seem kind of unfair or maybe even cruel for God to do this because they're working hard and God's just basically making all their efforts fruitless. But in actuality, this is the discipline of of a good and loving father because God wasn't going to allow their worldly efforts to succeed because that's not what they needed most. God knew that, The people needed to find their true satisfaction in him and in his presence, which is mediated through the temple in the Old Testament times. And so, therefore, he's frustrating their attempts so that they can find satisfaction in something, so they don't find satisfaction in something other than him. And so this is actually God's grace that he's doing here. And we may think that we can find satisfaction in in what we own or what we wear or our accomplishments or like we we sang with Be Thou My Vision, you know, um, Wealth I deed not, nor man's empty praise, right? Uh, These are all false idols. It's all temporary gifts. These are creations that, that are supposed to cause us to praise the creator and never to take the place of him. And so having rebuked his people, God now gives them instructions in verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So now that the people have considered their fruitlessness of their ways and their efforts to build their own house, God's saying, now go and and work on my house. Go up to the hills, get wood, uh, and, and begin to build it. And this wasn't easy work. And each person would need to take time away from their own agenda, and their own worldly efforts to build their own kingdoms in order to build God's kingdom, which is where God turns in verses 9 through 11, when he says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. God here is taking personal responsibility for blowing away the fruit of the labor. He says, I was the one who called for the drought. I was the one that kept the land from producing. And I, I think this is theologically significant because it's very clear that God does and can and will work through what seems like you know bad and adverse situations in order to accomplish his sovereign will because remember this is this is God's loving and his gracious discipline towards his people because if God would have been truly unkind he would have just let them prosper and you know have all these this worldly success uh, only for them to be you know for it to ultimately turn up empty in the end and so he, instead, he, he's frustrating their efforts. And, and why? That's, that's the same question God asks in verse 9. Why? And then he goes on to answer his own question. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. You know, when, when Dan first asked me to preach this Sunday and next Sunday, because his family was going to be in Disney World, I asked Dan what I should preach about. And in typical Dan fashion, and those of you guys who know Dan, these kind of answers don't surprise you. But he responded with the ironic suggestion that I should preach about how we should not go to Disney World. Well, well uh, I've actually decided to say something about that after all. Uh, because <laughs> being a public school teacher, I feel like I get a pretty good read on kind of the culture and the feeling and the perspective through you know, just what's popular in education or what the mindset of my students are. And what seems abundantly clear is that mottos like believe in yourself, or follow your dreams, those are like undisputed truths in our, in our popular culture. And maybe, just maybe, this has a little bit to do with Walt Disney World. I mean, Walt Disney, uh, one of his famous quotes is that all our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. And a lot of Disney movies proclaim these same types of ideas, now, obviously, I'm not saying that we shouldn't go to Disney World. And I love Disney movies myself. Um, Walt Disney's not the devil or anything like that. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but it, and it is true that there are some ways, like little kernels of truth in these messages uh, that even they're giving. But we have to be careful. Right? That we don't just automatically absorb these messages that are coming at us, and that, you know, the culture and even advertisements are trying to get us to think that it's all about us. You know, it's all about what you're doing, the goals you're striving after, the things that you're building, the dreams you're pursuing. But if one thing's clear from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it's the fact that it's not about us. Like, we are just a very small part of a much bigger story, a meta-narrative that is all about God and his glory. And I'm sure that the Israelites in Haggai's time could have been saying things like, you know, patting each other on the back and be like, good for you. You know, I love what you've done with these place, the panels and stuff. It's very nice. Or, you know, they're thinking to themselves, like, I just got to have the courage to pursue my dreams so that I can, you know, uh, build this nice, great, big old house, you know, uh, that we can live in for my family and things like that. All the while, God's house lies there in ruins. Because the people had forgotten their true purpose. They'd forgotten who had made them. They'd forgotten who they were made for. And obviously, it's not, it's not that the pursuing goals is a bad thing. But it comes back to, to why we're pursuing them. Like, for the sake of whose glory are we pursuing these goals? And this even applies to myself in this very moment. Because... I love getting the opportunity to preach at BC, but if I'm not careful, then I can I can make this all about me. I can make it all about my glory because what my flesh wants is people to like me. You know, so I want people to look at and be like, "Oh, he's doing uh, such a great job," or whatever it looks like. But when I'm doing that, I'm still making it about myself, like I'm still busying myself with my own house. Although it may look like, oh, I'm, I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, so I must be building God's house. But if my motives underneath that are so that, you know, I can gain the approval of people, then it's, it's still about me. I'm still doing it for my own sake. And so the, in, the, in the first section of this chapter, we saw the Lord, he's rebuking his people for them, saying that it's not yet time. And then in the second section, he's saying, you know, to consider their ways and he's giving them command to, to build the temple. And now in this final section, we get to see encouragement and promise. Verse 12 gives the response of the people to Haggai's message. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So they listened And they obeyed the voice of the Lord, speaking through Haggai. And then in verse 13, God gives them further encouragement. I'm with you, declares the Lord. So this was hard work, and they had to leave their worldly comforts behind. But God was giving them a greater comfort, his very own presence. The Lord was there to encourage and to strengthen the work. Because our God always empowers and encourages us to do what he's called us to do. And we can obey the Lord and step out of our comfort zones, because he's with us in such moments. In fact, we're usually more aware of our need for the Lord in the moments when we are uncomfortable and that, you know, we feel in over our heads because that's when we're, we're realizing that we really need the Lord. It's not, it's not that we didn't need him before because we actually need him at every moment. But it's during those times when we are uncomfortable that we, we recognize most clearly our need for the Father. I know for me in my own life, the period that I felt like I relied on the Lord the most was when I spent a semester overseas as a missionary in Asia, because it was difficult. It was uncomfortable, and I was I was painfully aware on a daily basis just how much I needed the Father and, and relied on Him. And it's true that even here and now, you know, I'm just as much in need of the Father, but because I, I feel more comfortable and it's a little bit easier, I'm I'm forced, not forced, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to, to rely on myself uh, much more than relying on the Lord, to make it more about me than about him and what he's doing. The final two verses of the chapter tell us how the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This here is is a beautiful picture of how the actions of men as well as the sovereignty of the almighty Lord of hosts can work together in conjunction. Because, you know, on the one hand we are told in verse 12 that the leaders and the people obeyed the voice of the Lord and began building a temple. Yet at the same time, verse 14 says that it was the Lord stirring up the spirit of the leaders that brought this about. And I think we can take tremendous encouragement from this. Encouragement to to step out from building our own house or step out from what's comfortable uh, in order to be a part of building God's kingdom. Because the sovereign God who has all the armies of angels at his disposal, he's completely in control. And he works in our hearts by the power of his spirit to stir us up to walk in those good works that he's prepared for us. And he's with us and he's comforting us in the midst of difficult and, and uncomfortable situations. And this obviously doesn't mean that we should just sit back and wait for, you know, God to stir up in our heart to do what he's already called us to do because that time's now. Don't, don't harden your heart to what God is saying through Haggai here. Don't miss out on being a part of what God's doing. You may have been thinking this whole time we've been looking at Haggai this morning, is you know, what, what's the big deal with the temple? Why does this matter so much? And this is where we need to be reminded of our context in this, you know, uh, this side of the cross versus the context of the people in Haggai, because for them the temple was the mediation of God's presence. It's Not that God was necessarily bound to the temple or that He needed the temple. I mean, even in this passage, we see God's telling them He's He's with them. Uh, you know, He's present there even before they've even rebuilt the temple. As they're in the process of rebuilding the temple, but in the Old Testament, the temple was a place for like for sacrifices and for prayer and for. Uh, Reading of the law. And so the temple was really like the main avenue that the people experienced God. And it was also a sign of God's covenant, his promises to his people. And so as these former exiles are returning back from exile, you know, God is wanting to renew his covenant with them. And, And this is seen primarily through the rebuilding of the temple. But now, for us, now that the promised Messiah has come, we have a little bit different context because when Jesus came to earth, John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God himself came and, and literally tabernacled among us. He lived a perfect life. Jesus obeyed all of the law and all of God's commands. He was truly Emmanuel, God with us. He was healing diseases, opening eyes, revealing truth. And then when Jesus died on the cross, it was God incarnate, who took the punishment for our sins. And when he gave up his final breath, the Bible tells us that the curtain in the temple, that veil that separated the people from the direct presence of God, was torn in two from top to bottom, showing that since Christ's blood pays the penalty for our sin, then our sin no longer separates us from the presence of God. And then three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead, showing that he's exactly who he claimed to be, the very son of God, and before he sent it into heaven, he told his people that it was actually a good thing that he's going away because he's sending a helper. He's sending the Holy Spirit, and this Holy Spirit is the very presence of God that, that the Israelites sought in the temple. But it no longer exists in the temple. You know where does the Holy Spirit reside? Where does God's unique presence reside now? In us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. If we've placed our faith in Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Paul talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So, therefore, for us, glorifying God through the temple means glorifying God with our very lives. We're also made to, to expand the temple by sharing the good news of Christ with others that they can become temples of the Holy Spirit when they trust in Christ as well. But when we prioritize our own comfort, our own glory, our own agenda, when we are like the Israelites in Haggai's time, becoming focused on you know, busying ourselves with building our own house, we're forgetting what's most important. We're forgetting that we have been, like Paul said, bought with a price We've been made to live for something so much more. But a lot of times, living in that way, living for what's, you know, uh, not, not, not what our flesh desires, but doing what's uncomfortable is difficult. Stepping out of our comfort zone is hard. And like we admitted with the kids, right, it's so much easier to sit there and to watch the movie and to be entertained than to get up and do what our good Father has asked us to do. We can become so bogged down with what's going on in our own lives what we've got going on that we neglect what's most important. And I'm not sure how this manifests itself in your guys' lives. You know, for me, sometimes it can look like as I go to my job, as I go to, to teaching at the high school, that I just go into like a, a cruise control where I'm just like going through the motions, not really looking for opportunities to be intentional, to love people, or to share the gospel. Uh, I, I'm just trying to be comfortable and get through the day. Or it can even look like me busying myself with, with doing all these things that I'm doing, maybe even good things like like caring for my family or uh, leading the MC or taking seminary classes, but in the midst of that, making it all about me and my own glory instead of about about, uh, God and his glory. But the good news is that even though it is difficult, God is with us just as he promised with the Israelites as they rebuilt the temple. God is with us by his spirit, empowering us and, and comforting us as we seek to glorify him. So, As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to be reminded of these things. And and be reminded that these elements are really a a very clear reminder that it's it's not about us. Like we were so broken that, that Christ's body had to be broken for us. And that's represented by the bread. And that Christ's blood had to be shed for us, represented by the juice. It demonstrates just how weak and how feeble that we are. That we have fallen miserably short of God's perfect standard. So much so that God himself had to come and, and become a man and, and do what we couldn't do and die a death in our place. And so therefore let us repent of our sins and place and as you as you pray in your seats uh, before coming up and getting the bread and juice, uh, repent of the ways and think about how, how are ways that I'm busying myself uh, with my own house. Uh, repent of those things, trust in Christ for your forgiveness. And then take tremendous comfort in knowing that he's with you by his spirit empowering you and comforting you. Even when it's tough, even when it's uncomfortable, he's empowering you by his spirit to do what he's called you to do. And then when you're ready, you can come up to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, you can take the elements and, and consume them and then return back to your seats. And if you're here this morning and all this talk about living for God's glory sounds rather odd or, or maybe even unpleasant, then it may be because you don't yet know the Lord. You don't yet, you haven't yet seen the beauty of Christ or experienced his grace or you haven't placed your faith in Christ. And if that's the case, I'd ask that you refrain from taking the Lord's Supper this morning because it doesn't make sense for you yet. And I plead with you to to please talk with me or talk with someone uh, that you came with or someone that you know has relationship with Christ to talk about what does that look like to place your trust in Christ. Let's pray, Father. We love you so much, and we are so thankful for um, ransoming us us, us with your blood, um, saving us that we didn't deserve it. And um, God, thank you that you are building us up as a temple, uh, a temple of living stones, uh, for for your presence, uh, for you. God, and I pray that we would not busy ourselves uh, with our own houses, but remember that we've been bought with a price and that we have been made for a much greater purpose, and so help us to, to do what's difficult and to do things for your glory, uh, knowing that it's by your power and by your spirit, and I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper the, this morning, God, that those truths would just be um, reminded in our hearts, and uh, God, that we would we would glorify you as you most certainly deserve. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.